In recent years, a debate has more and more come to the fore about whether we have entered a decadent phase of Western liberal society and of liberal democracy. Many think the signs point to yes. What triggered this decline and whether it was inevitable and what the prognosis for the future is. That is, what can we expect to unfold and is there some way to mitigate the decline? I will assume that many of you are familiar with these questions already. Yet I'd like to highlight at the outset one prominent point of Patrick Deneen's argument in his recent book, Why Liberalism Failed. A major cause of what he argues is the present failure of liberalism is the enlightenment exaltation of individual autonomy and the dangerous political form, he thinks, it takes in liberal regimes that aim principally at securing the rights of individuals. I would like to offer a different perspective, the longer-term perspective of a Dominican Thomist. Now, this is a complex subject. It's a matter of diagnosing our present situation, discerning the causes of the disease, and then the prognosis for the future and the prescription of a solution. And there are many factors at play, both theoretical and existential. As for theoretical questions, Deneen and others, like, for example, Michael Hanby, pose a big one. Is the Enlightenment idea of liberty the core theoretical problem for liberalism today? Yet, we might observe that surely contemporary secular liberalism is not simply the straightforward intellectual offshoot of the Enlightenment. There are other theoretical problems lurking here. As Father Thomas Joseph White, my confrere, has recently argued in First Things, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, Foucault, they want to smash the rational morality and universal ethics of the Enlightenment in order to let artistic creativity and Dionysian freedom reign. And then there are also the scientistic materialists who profess a materialistic determinism that seems to leave no room for freedom. And then after these theoretical questions, there are existential ones. Our present situation is not just a pure product of an intellectual theory. As an existential lived reality, it's much more complex. On the one hand, things might not be as bad as the theory might make you think. We do stand, after all, in a living tradition of politics and law that stretches back to the Middle Ages and even to the ancient world. Revolutions in the Anglophone world are never quite as radical as the revolutions in thought might suggest. Whether that holds for France is another question. On the other hand, things might be even worse than the theoretical would tell us, because there are other crises afoot the crisis of the family, the massive changes of the sexual revolution, the detachment of individuals from communities resulting from forms of communication, technology, transportation. We could even add the Industrial Revolution to the list. So admitting all of this complexity, I think it's still extremely important for us to give serious thought to the theoretical questions. Ideas really do matter. You can't begin your journey unless you know where you're trying to go. Part of the challenge of our present situation is that we don't have theoretical clarity on what the real issues are, and therefore on what the existential elements of our, what existential elements of our political and social life need to change. So this brings me to the main task of this talk. 
I will argue that any adequate account of the present problem and of possible solutions requires us to grasp the true nature of the relations between law, justice, and individual rights, and the common good, and how these intersect with the person's existence as an individual who inevitably belongs to a larger whole or community. Now, these are classic questions in political philosophy. But I would say our perspective needs to be even wider, because each person is called to, and is made for, an even more important destiny that transcends politics, ultimately communion with God. I'd argue that you're only fully able to appreciate the dignity of the human being, the right relation between the individual and the community, the significance of individual rights, and the true purpose of politics in view of this whole perspective. So, some words on Thomas Aquinas on law, justice, rights, and the common good. In contemporary legal discourse, there are what seem to be inevitable and insoluble conflicts on two levels. One is horizontal, and the other is vertical. Horizontally, you have conflicts between the rights of one individual and the rights of another. And vertically, you see conflicts between individual rights and the common good. So in both cases, one ends up with something like neighbors fighting over a property line. If you move the line in favor of one, you're taking away the territory of the other. Thomas Aquinas offers an alternative to this view. It's a part of his synthesis of the interrelationship of justice, law, and the common good. Now, he's not alone in thinking along these lines, of course, but his synthesis is particularly powerful, and in contemporary discourse, I think, it's far too little known or understood. So let's start with justice. In his great synthetic work, the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas first discusses justice as an attribute of God. In doing so, Aquinas affirms a key principle. Justice always refers to a wise or reasoned ordering among things. When we speak about justice in God, then, we're referring first of all to the divine intellect, insofar as God's intellect conceives the perfectly wise plan by which all things are ordered back to himself. Justice is then only secondarily in God's will, according to Aquinas, insofar as by his will, God acts according to the wise order he has conceived in his intellect. So Aquinas' view is thus very different from later voluntaristic theories, according to which the decree of God's will, which we are bound to obey, is the ultimate root of justice and law. For Aquinas, law is not primarily an expression of God's will. Rather, the wisely ordered plan of creation in God's intellect is like a law, Aquinas explicitly says this, it's like a law that guides the perfectly just willing of God. So law is an expression of reason. 
an ordering according to reason, even in God. And so justice results from rightly willing according to the wise or reasoned orderings of all things back to God. This understanding of justice, order, and reason is echoed by Aquinas' famous definition of law as, quote, an ordination of reason for the common good made by one with authority and promulgated. Like justice, law for Aquinas designates an order of reason. It is a rule and measure of acts because the law sets forth the ordered plan to attain the end, the goal. Later in the Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas treats of justice in human affairs. Human justice, he says, is part of a broader account of how man is ultimately ordered to God within the complex network of overlapping relationships he has with others, like his family, his neighbors, his city, and so forth. Indeed, Aquinas defines justice precisely in terms of a right ordering in human acts, operating on both a horizontal and a vertical axis. Horizontally, justice implies that one individual acts rightly, is rightly ordered in relation to another individual. And vertically, it implies that the individual is rightly ordered in relation to the higher common good, whether of the political community or even to the highest possible common good, which is God himself. So there are three key elements to Aquinas' account of justice. It involves, first, an ordering. Second, according to reason. And third, to the good. So, with this sketch, we're now ready to take up the question of rights. Does Aquinas have a theory of individual rights. It's often been thought that he does not. Now, this is not a minor question for the topic of our conference, because people like Patrick Deneen, Michael Hanby, and others claim that the key theoretical problem we're facing stems from the invention in the Enlightenment of theories of individual rights alien to the preceding Christian synthesis of thinkers like Aquinas and others. Now, I think that this historical claim about the origin of individual rights is misleading. As I've recently argued in detail elsewhere, Aquinas does have an account of individual rights, and I think you can substantiate that uh, with a lot of evidence from his texts. If you read beyond the narrow slices of the Summa Theologiae that political theorists typically read, Aquinas very explicitly speaks of what is objectively due to someone as a subjective jus, that's the Latin term which can be translated as a right, that that individual possesses and can assert even in a legal process, even over against other people, even against the king, for example. The Latin word that Aquinas uses here, ius, that's spelled I-U-S, this is hard to translate into English. 
Standard translations usually render it as right, but it can also mean the just thing or what is due. We could also say that jus is what is right or perhaps even the fair. Sometimes jus can even be translated as law, although that isn't quite correct according to Aquinas, especially when we're speaking of a written law, he explains. The jus is the measure and the intelligible form of a law. In the same way that an artisan's idea of the table he is building or is going to build is the mental exemplar and measure of what he actually carves in wood. And even more importantly for Aquinas, the jus is the object or measure of justice. So Aquinas' point is that we judge whether an action is just or whether a law is just by reference to this measure of justice, the jus. Have I rendered you your jus? What is fair? What is due to you? But of course, we can also turn that sentence around. You are due something from me, namely your jus. And here you have, in effect, a conception of a right that belongs to, is due to, you, an individual. And in fact, I've come across at least 25 different examples in Aquinas' text where he uses jus to refer to just such an individual right that can be enforced against others. It's crucial, however, if one is going to understand Aquinas, to grasp that he never considers individual rights, this jus, as abstracted from the common good or the wider teleological order, that is, the ordering of things to an end or a goal, and even ultimately the ordering of all things to God. Rather, for Aquinas, rights are a function of justice and of law and of the common good. And as we have already seen now, justice and law for Aquinas, are directed to the common good. So they always concern how an individual belongs to a larger order and is himself teleologically ordered according to reason to a good. So now let's briefly shift our focus to two other pre-Enlightenment thinkers, both of them Catholic priests, like Aquinas, who was a Dominican, one of them is a Franciscan, and one of them is a Jesuit. And they offer very different accounts of individual rights than Aquinas, primarily because they have lost sight of the truth that justice, <laughs> law, yes, I mean, they, just this one truth, that's all I'm saying. They surely have many other truths in sight, but they've lost sight of the truth that justice, law, and use all depend on and are facets of a wise or reasoned ordering of individuals to the good. In the history of moral theology, William of Ockham, the 14th century Franciscan nominalist, is typically identified as the primary culprit on this score. 
While Aquinas defined law as an ordination of reason for the common good, Occam understood it rather as ultimately rooted in not God's intellect, not reason, will, God's will. This meant that law ceased to be something that wisely orders one to the good and became a function of God's command, which God in principle could change or even reverse. Similarly, where Aquinas spoke of use as the object of justice, what is due to someone in view of the complex ordering of individuals and communities to the good, Occam, in contrast, defines use merely as a licit power of a subject. In Occam, the central role of order, reason, and the good have largely disappeared from the picture. It's important, however, that we not stop here with Occam, because some subsequent figures also lost sight of this crucial dimension of St. Thomas's thought. And this is particularly the case with Francisco Suarez, the great Jesuit who, in the early 17th century, stands at the origin of the distinctive Jesuit line of interpretation of Thomas Aquinas. Now, Suarez was no Occamist, no nominalist. He was an opponent of Occam. And he praises Aquinas and often cites him. But he also consistently alters the meanings of Aquinas' terms, producing a notably different doctrine of law, justice, and rights. For example, for Suarez, the essence of law is not an ordination of reason to the common good, as Aquinas taught. In fact, entirely absent from Suarez's initial definition of law in his great work on law, which is extremely influential, entirely absent from this initial definition of law of Suarez is any reference to an ordering to the common good. Law, according to Suarez, is first of all about moral precepts, commands. One's actions are good when they conform to the command of a superior. And as a result, even the terms good and end, which pepper Aquinas' discussion of law and justice, these terms largely disappear from Suarez's treatment, replaced instead with the terms right and wrong, measures not of whether an action produces the good or leads an actor to his proper end, but rather of whether an actor's will is conformed to the moral command of his superior. And this is also evident when Suarez examines the meaning of jus. Above all, jus for Suarez designates, quote, a certain moral power which every man has either over his own property or with respect to that which is due to him. Use for Suarez has now become principally a power of each individual. It no longer has an intrinsic, internal reference to a wider order of relationships, nor to a teleological ordering to the common good. Okay, how does this historical review affect our diagnosis of the crisis that liberalism faces today. I think it shows that the original theoretical culprit is not the supposed invention of a theory of individual rights in the Enlightenment, but rather the shift with respect to law 
and the common good and an orientation to the good and to an end that you see as beginning in Occam and completed in Suarez. And this shift produces an account of law, justice, and rights that is fundamentally different from Aquinas's in two primary ways. And I think these are the two primary theoretical problems we still face. The first is, there's a loss of the recognition that law is fundamentally an ordination of reason to the common good, and not the imposition of an obligation by the will of a superior. And second, there's a loss of the sense that rights are a feature of the overarching teleological order to the good in which the rational creature is placed rather than a moral power of the creature considered without reference to that order. So these two changes are already clearly in evidence in Occam and Suarez well before they're taken up into the theories of later generations of secular Enlightenment thinkers. Now, the problem caused by these two, these two changes were magnified, of course, by the secular turn of the Enlightenment, which not only exalted the autonomous liberty of the individual, but also undermined or even denied a teleological ordering of the human being towards some definite good. Think of the quotation of David Hume given by Remy Brock last night. So these thinkers self-consciously sought to create a kind of public truce on religious questions. And so they made religion a private matter of personal judgment. And they wanted a neutral political philosophy with no overarching commitment to a common good of depth and substance. What has become increasingly clear in our epoch, however, I think, is that the supposed neutrality of liberalism is actually only camouflage, behind which there is always a strong commitment to some good, even if its liberal proponents don't realize it themselves. Or to put it another way, Thomas Aquinas was right about claims of individual rights. Rights claims are necessarily and always a function of some ordering towards or aiming at a good. Seen in this light, we can then begin to see what our current problem is. It's not that we so much have proliferating claims to incompatible rights, that's a symptom, but more fundamentally, it's that we have radical disagreements about what is the good. Or to put it another way, the goal of secular liberalism to exclude strong claims about the good from our political life for the sake of establishing a neutral truce, this is simply an impossible goal. A regime of rights always smuggles strong claims about the good back into our politics through the back door, camouflaged as something else, and this systematically prevents us from acknowledging that we are divided over what we think the transcendent aim of a human life and the ends of our communities are. And that, I would contend, is the conversation we need to be having. So let's now turn from the past and a diagnosis to the future. 
given the contemporary crisis, what should be done? I agree with Thomas Joseph White and Patrick Deneen that there is no going back to some idealized past. There's only going forward. But in order to go forward, we need to have some idea, at least in theory, of what we need to recover and to protect so that we will not simply replicate in a different form the errors of the past. So to answer this need, I'd like to summarize and recapitulate the essentials of what I would call the Thomistic account of the truth about law, politics, rights, justice, and the common good. So this is a kind of summary, recapitulation of what I've been talking about. So the use, or what is due to another, depends on, first, the overarching order of the cosmos, which is laid out according to God's wisdom and is therefore both intelligible and teleological, directed to an end, and which is composed of persons endowed with reason and free choice who are members of various communities that are themselves arranged in hierarchical order. This order is not only this worldly, but it includes also a transcendent ordering to God. Human beings are made for a divine destiny, and even the political regime should recognize this, although it's an end that transcends politics and the state, and over which politics and the state have no authority. That's the first point. Then second, this yus is a function of the relationality that follows from the place that these persons have in this order. Nor is this order an abstraction. It's the concrete, particular, historical order in which I find myself. So an individual person comes into the world as the child of parents, living in a human community, as a creature under God. She has not herself created or generated this order. Consequently, the human person necessarily and inevitably exists in an interlocking web of relationships, of belonging as a part to other wholes, family, clan, city, the whole human race, the whole body of Christ, the whole of creation. These relationships are not constituted by our choices. Rather, we could say that a human person is naturally and originally in these relationships. Aquinas's understanding of justice and thus of rights is therefore quite different from the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment accounts derived from social contract theory, which postulate that man exists first as a kind of independent individual in a primitive state of nature, and therefore brings to the relationships that he chooses to enter certain fundamental rights, which are in a sense anterior to, before these relationships. Such theories, whether we're speaking about Hobbes or Locke or more recent authors like perhaps John Rawls, such theories tend to abstract from the concrete historical relationships, and we might say that the real initial conditions into which we are in fact born. They're aiming at developing an account of the basic or fundamental rights that human beings have purely in virtue 
of being human so that justice becomes at least in part granting what is due in virtue of those rights so that, on their view, individuals can then pursue whatever goods they deem worthy of their choice. For Aquinas, in contrast, the ultimate end of human beings is not a matter of arbitrary choice, not even for God. The whole plan of divine providence originates in God's wisdom as an ordination of reason with respect to the good. And so we are born into the world as creatures who naturally occupy a place in that order and who are naturally ordered to a final end. And we might even say also supernaturally ordered by grace to a supernatural final end, a good that we do not choose. Neither are our relationships matters of choice. We simply are in certain relationships, family relations, relations with our neighbors, members of a larger political and civic community. Justice thus has to do, on this view, with our right ordering to the good that we do not determine for ourselves. It's based on a reality outside of us, in the order of relations in which we inevitably exist. So this account shows us then, I think, the right way to think about rights. Rights are not properties of individuals as moral monads. Rather, their source is found by considering the human being as a rational and free creature ordered to God and to the common good of the hierarchy of communities to which that person belongs. And we also should add that law itself is inevitably teleological. It's always pointing to, ordered to, the common good, either real or merely apparent. And so rights are likewise always teleological. They affirm what is required if persons are to be rightly ordered to each other and to the political authority in view of the common good. So to respect the rights of another, that is, to give her what is due to her, her use, not only pertains to her private good, but it means acting in right relation to her and to the order of the whole, to the common good. <coughs> so Aquinas teaches that our ends, our, the aim that is given to us, as it were, these ends are not arranged just side by side on a horizontal plane, but they also exist in an ordered hierarchy. We're ordered to individual goods, like the good of biological life, and then to higher and nobler common goods, like the good life that we share in a virtuous family, a flourishing and friendly neighborhood, a happy university community, and a just city. And ultimately, to God, who is the universal common good of the whole universe. Law of various kinds directs us towards these various levels of good. And rights should therefore also be understood as a function of a just ordering of each person towards the common good. All right, so note, however, how this view differs from a typical 
contemporary theory of rights. In a classic Thomistic view, the end, say the common good, and the ordering of the community to that end, these are primary. Rights articulate claims of justice in relation to the end. Consequently, rights are not absolute or unlimited claims, nor are they themselves the ultimate foundation of or reason for our political community. Rather, rights always point to something further and nobler than an individual or private good, the common good of the whole. Actually, this was essentially the point made by Lord Acton, I believe, in, in Remy Brog's quotations last night. This is not to say, of course, that individual rights must always bow before the demands of a political authority. To the contrary, Aquinas does hold that some rights are a function of the order of the human being to a good that is prior to and transcends the political. But even these rights don't stand on their own, as it were. They stand in virtue of their relation to a good. Now, a contemporary rights theorist might pose an objection here. Doesn't this Thomistic view subordinate the liberty that individual rights guarantee under the common good, such that those rights will be endangered whenever the government or the majority finds them inconvenient? Isn't this precisely the reason why we should affirm the primacy of individual rights, understood as anterior to, before political society, and independent of the common good. A complete answer to this objection would require a much longer treatment than I can provide here, but let me at least identify the confusion about the common good hiding in questions like this. From Aquinas' perspective, the common good is not something that competes with the good of individuals, nor is it like other private goods which are diminished when they're shared. For example, more people invited to the party means a smaller slice of cake for each of them. The common good is not like that. A common good is precisely the kind of good that can be shared by many without diminishment, like the good of victory for a sports team, or the good of justice in a city, or the good of peace among states. To say then that rights stand in relation to a good is not to say that some kind of alien or hostile common good trumps or even destroys the good of the individual, like the battle of two landowners arguing over the property line. Rather, the common good is a good for the individual. It's a good of a higher and nobler sort in which the individual participates and without which it's impossible to have a full measure of human happiness. Human beings are ordered not only to private goods like food and shelter, but also to common goods like justice, truth, civic friendship, and peace. And without at least some measure of these common goods, human beings will neither flourish nor be happy. As Aquinas, paraphrasing Aristotle's politics, puts it, the city exists not only that men might live, but that they might live well. That individuals have rights which they can assert and which the positive law should recognize pertains therefore not to the private good of individuals, but to the common good of the community. 
the blessings of liberty, as the preamble to the U.S. Constitution puts it, should not be thought of as describing a merely private good. The individual property of discrete individuals. This is actually a dimension of the common good. It's a part of the common good that the community be just, that it recognize what is due to its members, that it be governed by the rule of law and be composed of free citizens capable of directing their own lives by their own responsible choices. When the law acknowledges and protects the just right of a citizen, it's doing something quite different than pork barrel spending that hands out goodies, material benefits, essentially private goods, to the favored clients of the congressman. Acknowledging what is due to individuals is, at least in part, what makes a society just, and that's part of the common good. On this view, then, individual rights are not set over against the common good, as if an increase in the common good necessarily diminished individual liberty. Rather, that individuals be secure in their liberties as citizens, that they possess rights, is an aspect of the common good. And the protection of those rights in law is a means for securing the common good of a just republic. To put it another way, rights are important, or even fundamental and indispensable, precisely because of the primacy of the common good and the place that each individual has in the order of the whole. So while it may be true that certain Enlightenment versions of rights create mischief, they set up insoluble political conflicts, we see some of that in our own society, it's not clear that the notion of rights itself produces this, at least not necessarily so. Seeing this allows us to see then how we, perhaps as, as Christians, who recognize the difficulties in our present situation, how we can continue to use the language of rights and continue to live and work in a political regime where rights are so central. Our task is not to renounce a system of rights or to try to construct a regime without them. I think that Aquinas would say that rights are an inevitable and necessary part of justice, and that no matter what theory we construct, in actual fact, in the nature of the case, rights unavoidably and always are founded on some prior judgment about the good, either the good for individual persons or for the human community. So if that is true, then our epic's shrill and proliferating claims of incompatible rights should tell us that behind this camouflage, there is a deeper and more radical disagreement about what is good. And our political life can only improve if we bring this disagreement out into the open where we can have an honest debate about the true end of our common life together and of each of us ultimately in the end. Thank you. <laughs>